Acts 22, pretty much the entire chapter. I don't know if you've ever been misrepresented intentionally or misunderstood. My memory is not very good. So fortunately, I don't really remember a time when I've been completely misrepresented on purpose. Though, I have been misunderstood. Um, For example, this summer, I was in Juarez for a few weeks and went to uh, men's soccer league. And I'm sitting there. And uh, the guys are like, we're really in need of somebody. You're the last guy, and we really need somebody to play goalie. And they're like, you can probably do it because you're tall. It'll be all right. And uh, they didn't have a whole lot of expectations of me. So they were, had my expectations really down here. And uh, every, every time I, they, they shot a goal at me, I stopped it. And I stopped it, and they kept on saying, Bueno, Ueto, Bueno, Ueto, which like, good job, Whitey, good job. Bueno, Ueto. And, and I kept on stopping the goals, and, and then they're like, good job, they're good job. It's like, you have exceeded all of our expectations. So that was a positive misunderstanding. But oftentimes Christians, and especially in the early church, they were misrepresented Uh, on purpose and unintentionally. I'll give you one example that was common in the early days of the church. They would say, the pagans, the Romans would say, have you heard about the Christians? Did you know that Christians are cannibals? I heard last week when they gathered together, they ate the body of this guy named Jesus. So stay away from them. They're cannibals. And some of them actually believed this, but some of this was also just a way to misrepresent them so that you wouldn't believe them. Misrepresenting people. Paul here is being misrepresented in this uh, situation where he's on trial in Jerusalem. He's being misrepresented by the Jews from Antioch because they're saying, Paul's teaching some new stuff, different stuff. And it's seen in his life and what he's been doing. And so what we're going to look at is Paul's defense here, is what he's talking about. Looking at the accusations against him, which is an accusation against his teaching. And by attacking him and his teaching, he has to defend himself. So he's defending himself, but really in defending himself against these uh, misrepresentations, he's actually defending the heart of the gospel of Jesus. So even though it is Paul on trial here, it's actually the gospel of Jesus that is on trial. That's what we're going to look at first. And then we're going to see some of the similarities between Jesus' trial and Paul's trial. But first, this trial. So if you want to see the context, you can, can look at this first picture. Where this is happening, where this whole trial before the Jews is happening is with the Jewish crowds outside the steps of the temple. And what we see here is there's the, the Roman commanders. Um, I don't know if you can bring up the slide of the picture. What we see here is there's the temple. And over here on the far side is this Antonian fortress. In the middle of it is this temple. And it is huge. It's a huge space. And where this is occurring is right on the steps of the temple in between the fortress run by the Romans. 
It's on the edge of the temple complex. And this temple was built about 80 years before this time. And it hadn't even been finished yet because it was this massive complex. And the temple you see, you go to the next picture, is seen to to spiritually protect these people, the people of God, by these barriers, by these walls that are there. And so we see Paul here in the temple. In verse 27, he's in the temple and he's just been purifying himself as we saw last week, going through a Nazarite vow with some of the other Jewish believers where there's this one little section, one place where it's the chamber of the Nazarites and he's been purified. And finally he goes into the inner area where the temple of the Israelites' courtyard, which is the courtyard of the Jewish males for those who were spiritually purified. And this is where Paul probably is. And then we see in verse 27, it says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out. This is the accusation they make. Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law and this place. So here's the accusation. Paul is teaching everybody, everywhere, against the people of God, against the law of God, and against this place, meaning the temple, the very presence of God. And then they give supposed evidence. And the reason is, we, moreover, we see that he brought a Gentile into the middle of this temple. You see that in verse 28b. He says, look at what he did. He brought a Greek into this temple and had defiled this holy place. Now, he didn't actually bring them in, but they saw this Greek with him before, and so they thought, he must have brought him into the temple. You see picture three here, the next picture. It was absolutely prohibited for a Greek, a, a Gentile, a Roman, to enter the temple. There's this inscription, this warning inscription outside of the temple in the court of the Gentiles. And the only difference between, and this is it, and the only difference back then is that the, the words were painted in red to make a statement. And this is what it said. Let no Gentile enter within the partition and barrier surrounding the temple. Whosoever is caught shall be responsible for his subsequent death. Mr. Gentile, enter this gate and you're dead. Fortunately, the sign was in Greek so they could read it. But why? I mean, why is this sign there and why couldn't they enter? Because in the Old Testament, people are are unholy and Gentiles who are unholy, if they come and enter the temple, they defile it. And so God's very presence cannot be there. And so when, when they're saying, Paul brought a Gentile into the temple, they're saying, Paul says that God is making it so that God is no longer with us, that he is not present. And the laws are meant to ensure this and to protect the people. And so by, by going against saying that, Jesus, that, that Paul has brought some Jews, I mean some Gentiles into the temple, he's saying, without God's presence, the law is broken, the people are in great danger without God. So kill Paul. Kill him. 
Obviously, he's teaching something new and something different. And he doesn't care about the temple. He doesn't care about God's presence anymore. And so we see in verse 31, the crowds take him out of the temple to kill him. They grab him. And and as they are grabbing him and taking him and about to beat him to death, the Roman commander comes from that fortress and takes him away. Not to save him, mind you. He's just trying to maintain order. He thinks that he's this Egyptian terrorist we see in verse 38. And Paul says to this guy in Greek, he says, No, 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 I am not that Egyptian terrorist. I'm a Jew from this major big city named Tarsus, which you probably know about, in Asia, which is not in Egypt. And so he's allowed to make a defense on the steps of the fortress right there in the temple, right before the, the, the temple and the, for, and the fortress. Now see, if, if Paul is only concerned for his, only, his life here, he wouldn't have to make this defense. But the accusations against Paul being against the people and the law and the temple are really a misrepresentation of his message and against the, the message of Jesus. So Paul makes his defense, and here's, here's where his defense is. There's, in summary of his defense, there's an introduction. There would be the facts of the case. There would be the rebuttal or the theological argument and conclusion. In this case, the only part he gets to is the introduction and the facts of the case, which are his testimony. And right after that, they don't want to hear it anymore. And in this, he is defending how he is not actually against the people or the law or God's presence. So in the introduction we see in verse 1, he says, Brothers and fathers, hear the offense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. You see, here in an introduction, the idea would be to just build your credibility. And he's saying, look, we're brothers. And he speaks in their language, and this brings them quietness, in a sense. He's building their credibility with them. He even later says, you are very zealous for the law, as I have been. Which, sometimes in an introduction, you say, you guys are so great. Which is a way for the audience to say, yeah, speaker, you're an awesome guy, too. He's, he's, he's not really doing that, but he's making an introduction to say, look, we, I am your brother. I understand and then he gets into the facts and the facts he looks at his pre-conversion example his life the encounter with the risen Lord and the return to the temple and by his pre-conversion life he says look I was a strict law keeper he says in verse 3 I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strictly according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. You see, Gamaliel was one of the main teachers from this school of thought that emphasized the tradition even above the law, and the tradition was seen to make sure that the law was kept rightly. It was the most influential school, and this teacher of Paul, Gamaliel, was called the beauty of the law. He's a, it's an interesting title for a person. You are the beauty of the law. The Talmud even said that since Rabbi Gamaliel died, the glory of the law has ceased. What Paul is saying here is, look, I know the law and I know the people of God. 
I've been very strict for it. I was so strict and zealous about the law that people keep it, that as I saw it, I persecuted those who didn't keep it. He says, I care so much for the law that I persecuted this way even to the death, the way of the Christians. He's saying, look, you have proof from my background how zealous I was for God's people and for the law, and I know it. And then he gets to his encounter with the risen Lord in verses 6 through 16. And he basically says, when I was on my way to Nazareth, Jesus stopped me in my tracks. He blinded him. And then he didn't know what exactly how to respond. And Jesus says, tells him what to do, how to make sense of what's going on. He says, there's a guy named Ananias in verse 12. And, and Ananias, all of you good Jews who you know, is, a, is devout according to the law. And he gave me sight. You see, Paul is still pointing out that even now, he's communicated to by somebody who's devout according to the law. Even after he's encountered Jesus, Ananias, you know him, he's devout according to the law. He explained all what this meant, this resurrection. In verse 14, he says, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. See, he says, the God of our fathers appointed you to see Jesus, the righteous one, the one who walked blamelessly in all the commands and the laws of God. What he's building and pointing to is that he is not, by his life and the people that he has come into contact with, against the law of God and against the people of God. And then he says, and I went back into the temple. In verse 17, I returned to the temple and prayed. And Jesus said to me, and I fell into, the, into a trance in the temple and, and Jesus said to me, make haste and go out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about you. You see, I, he says, I returned to the temple and I prayed there. And Jesus said to me, leave quickly because the people won't accept my testimony. But he's saying, look, I went back to the temple. By my life, I'm not against the temple. I'm not against the law. I'm not against the people of God. And I was going to go to all of the people. You can see by my life, is what he's saying. And this is where he gets cut off, because he says, that he quotes Jesus who says, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And they don't want to hear that. And so he doesn't get to the point where he gets to make his theological argument. He gets cut off on the facts. But the facts that he's pointing to in his life is, look, you've misrepresented me by saying I'm against the law, I'm against the people, and I'm against God's presence in the temple. I'm against God's presence. And he says no. But what he would say is, I think, in his theological response or his rebuttal would be, look, I saw the resurrected Jesus. And this is the proof that he is the fulfillment of God's presence. Especially God's presence. He is the fulfillment of God's people, of the law, of the temple. Jesus is the very presence of God. Think, for example, the story in John chapter 2 or in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19. 
you know how Jesus, he goes into, the, into Jerusalem on the Passover. And when he's there, he sees that the temple has become a market. And what, what's going on there? There's money changers who are selling oxen and pigeons, and they're sitting at booths in the temple. And what does Jesus do? He gets very angry, and he makes a whip. He sits down and actually makes a whip, and he grabs the coin from the money changers, and he spills them out, and he turns over the tables, and he kicks them out. I think this is an interesting story. I mean, you, you look at lots of pictures of Jesus with the little children, and these pictures of that that people make. I've never seen somebody make a painting of Jesus with the whip in the temple kicking down the, the money changers' table. Then he says in Mark 11, Is it not written, My house, Jesus says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And John records further the response of the leaders and the Pharisees, and they're like, Dude, Jesus, who do you think you are? What authority do you have for this? What sign do you show us for doing these things. And in John 2.19, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up, and, and you will raise it up in three days? I remember as a kid hearing this, this before, and I actually literally thought, as a kid, that Jesus was... <laughs> going to be there at the temple and he's going to like tear it down and then like really really fast in three days build it, build it up again the disciples you know they're kind of thinking the same thing but later he says it says in, in the scripture but he was speaking what was he speaking about it says he was speaking about the temple of his body when therefore he was raised from the dead his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see, what Paul, I think, would say is that I didn't see it. I didn't see it until the, res- until the resurrected Jesus blinded me. Once I saw him, I saw that all of our laws and all of our scripture and the temple point to him. The resurrected Jesus is the proof that his body is the temple. The resurrection is the proof that God's presence with us is found in Jesus. And so Paul would say, I am all about our temple, God's presence, because the risen Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of it. He is the temple. So we say, great. That's awesome. So what, Paul? Just thinking about this. There's lots of things that we can say about this, but one of the implications about this, do you know, is that we can draw near to God in prayer. See, in Jesus, who is the presence of God, we have access to God the Father. Go back to this temple picture. See, there's not all these separations 
at because of our impurity. But Jesus, by His perfect life, He cleans us up. It doesn't matter where we've come from, our different backgrounds, our ethnicities, or our sin, nor even how hard we pray. Jesus cleans us up and brings us into the presence of God. And we have access to our Father. And this is why He says on the Sermon of the Mount, you can pray simply. Your Father knows your needs. And Jesus Himself is even praying for us. Is that not encouragement for us to pray simply in Jesus' name? Because He is God's temple. He is the very presence of God with us. And yet I think we have a human tendency to think that we need something more uh, sometimes in prayer. I don't know if you have heard about this story, but there was a story this year about a grandmother from Brazil. And for years, she used this figurine um, to pray. And she thought it was a figurine of St. Anthony. And after a while, her granddaughter grabbed this figurine and she looked at it. And when she looks at it, she sees that it had really pointy ears, this little figurine. And she's wondering, what is this figurine with pointy ears? She looks it up. And it turns out this figurine that the grandmother thought was um, St. Anthony was actually a little action figure of Lord Elrond from Lord of the Rings. (laughs) One of the elf lords, you know. I think what we see that Jesus is the temple is that we don't need a Lord Elrond figurine. We don't need St. Anthony to help us to pray. We've got Jesus who brings us right to the very presence of God, the Father. He prays for us. He advocates for us. He is enough in our prayer because He is the very presence of God with us spiritually by His Holy Spirit. Now here's the thing. I know from what I know most of you that most of us here are not going to accidentally end up praying to Lord Elrond. Most of us here are not going to do that. Many of you are more likely to say, yes, Jesus is enough for me. He advocates for me. So, I don't need any of you guys. We wouldn't actually say that, but sometimes we think that. I don't need you guys. Jesus is enough for me, and so Jesus speaks better to me when I go hiking up in the mountains in the, in the forest in Cloudcroft. I am prone to think this way sometimes, actually. See, I may say, of course a Lord Elrond or St. Anthony is not going to help me, but maybe an enchanting forest or a tree... St. Anthony when I have the holy priesthood of me, myself, and I. I think we should be careful. Because Jesus intends for us to pray in His body. He intends for us to pray in His temple, which is being built together. That is, His gathered Christians, the church. See, sometimes we say, look at using figurines or going to the mountains and what happens when we do that sometimes is you're turning a material thing 
and infusing it with something spiritual. But the way that Jesus intends for us to pray is when we gather together in His body, in the church. And praise the Lord that He hears us because He is God's temple. He hears us when we pray in secret and He hasn't left us alone so that when we pray together, He is here and He hears us. And all of this is possible because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple which He proved to Paul by rising from the dead. So back to Paul's trial. One of the interesting things that we see here is that Luke is highlighting how Paul's trial in Jerusalem and Jesus' trial in Jerusalem have some similarities. And so Luke is actually demonstrating that Paul here is participating in some of the same trials that Christ suffered. What Jesus went through in Jerusalem, Paul is going through participates in the same suffering Christ suffered because of his union with Christ in his suffering. Look at verse look at verse 28 for example and the some of the similarities. Verse 28 it says that these guys they come and they they falsely accuse him is what's going on. Luke 23 verses 2 it says we found this man Jesus misleading our nation and forbidding tribute to Caesar saying he is Christ the king he stirs up the people teaching all through Judea even in this place what he's they're saying is they're misrepresenting Jesus as they're misrepresenting Paul false accusations eventually later we see the Romans finding him not guilty for Paul it's in another trial but we know Pilate says I found nothing guilty in this man there's a similarity in accusations, there's a similarity in the Romans, not finding these men guilty. And verse um, 23, oh, let's see, what is it? Verse 28. They cry out. I think it is. Yeah, verse, excuse me, verse 36. It says... For the the mob of the people followed Paul, crying out, Away with him! And you know what they say before Jesus is taken up on the cross, is taken to the cross, they say in Luke chapter 23, the exact same phrase, Paul records it, Away with this man! They're calling out, as they did for Jesus' crucifixion, they're calling out for Paul's death. He's sharing in some way some of the sufferings that Christ suffered. And we see this by Paul and his his, um, encounter with Christ in the Damascus Road when he's on his way. What's the very first thing that, that Jesus says to Paul when he knocks him and he's blinded by Jesus? What does he say? In verse 7 of 22, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, answers, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, who you are persecuting. Notice he says it twice. You're persecuting me. I'm Jesus, who you are persecuting. Could have maybe expected Paul to say, well, you know, uh, Jesus, I wasn't... Uh, persecuting you. I was just persecuting Christians. 
think if he said that, he might have been even more blinded or something. He doesn't say that. Because if he did, Jesus is saying, you are persecuting my body, and I am the head of it. I am the vine, and you are persecuting the branches. If you persecute them, you are persecuting me because we are united. I am united to my Christians. If you harm them, you harm me. If you mock them, you mock me. This union of Christ with his followers is the very first thing that Jesus reveals to Paul. In each of the three accounts that Paul recounts his conversion, is the very first thing that he says. You are persecuting me. And it's probably of great comfort and strength for Paul as he's standing trial here. You look at Paul's statements about union with Christ in his sufferings. In fact, union, this union, this spiritual union with Christ that we have as as Christians is so central to the Christian life and Paul's thinking. In fact, he says it many times, 83 times, in fact, he says, in Christ, you are in Christ, you are in Christ. This is our identity, this is our fundamental nature as Christians, is that we are in Christ. And so, he would speak about our union with Christ and his suffering. So, take, for example, 2 Corinthians chapter. 1 verse 5 where he says just as overbounding to you is Christ's suffering in this way in Christ abounds our comfort you want to talk about abounding and what is abundant in this Christian life it is that because we are united to him we abound in the sufferings of Christ But just as surely, he says, as you abound in the sufferings of Christ because you are united to Him, you share, you abound in His comfort. This is the abundant life of of Christians, is that because of our union with Him, we abound in sufferings with Him, but in that very same time, we abound in comfort. And in Acts 22, this is the context that we see. As Paul stands trial and makes his defense, the suffering of Christ abounds in him because he is united to Christ. And so as he stands in Christ, the comfort of Christ abounds in him as well. How else can we see his strength and his boldness throughout these coming trials that he faces? I know for my own self I don't like that I have a tendency to think God I am your son I am a child of God and I don't want suffering to be part of the plan that you have for my life Manuel was talking about this the other week we don't we don't want to think that and I hope that doesn't happen for you as much as possible come into a danger when we can say it is 100% God's plan for your life that you would be healed right now that you would be financially successful that you would have health, welfare and prosperity because you're his child this is dangerous 
Because then we end up saying, if we just had enough faith, then I would be healed. Or I would have welfare. Or my prosperity. And what happens if you're not healed right now? What happens if you continue to suffer? When you have those struggles, what happens when you get passed up for that promotion? Maybe we start thinking, well, I don't have enough, maybe I didn't have enough faith. Maybe we don't say that. Maybe we start to say, well, maybe God doesn't really care about me. Maybe I'm not really an important child to Him. But this line of thinking is not the direction that the Bible goes. In fact, as Christians, we who are united to Christ are united to Christ even in our sufferings and trials, in His sufferings and trials. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him or that we may be glorified with Him. You see, suffering, as Paul is experiencing and as we experience, is a way that God whispers or sometimes through a megahorn blares out that you are in fact His child. You are united to His Son. And He says to you, Do you see how my Son was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And yet I love him and he is my heir. And you, you know suffering, you know sorrow, and you're acquainted with grief. Because you are his sister, you are his brother, you are my child, you are an heir of all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. This is what Paul is saying. This is what God says to us. Because we are united to Christ. Why does this matter? As Gordon MacDonald put it, the Son of God suffered to death. Not that men might not suffer, but that their suffering might be like His. You see, we are united to Christ, as Paul was. And so our suffering is like His. We know His trials, and He knows our trials. Paul's trial in Jerusalem was like Jesus' trial in Jerusalem in some ways. Paul knew his trial, and Jesus knew Paul's trial. So Paul goes into these court cases, and he goes into these imprisonments, and these shipwrecks, and everything that follows, with comfort and boldness. Because the Son of God suffered unto death. Not so that men might not suffer, but so that your suffering, your trials, your misrepresentations, and your struggles in the world might be like His. So let us pray. Lord, we pray and we praise you that you, Jesus, are the very presence of God. 
thank you that we are united to you by faith and that come what may we are with you and you are with us and so strengthen us O Lord Jesus Amen